It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. And it is a pleasure to welcome uh, to the show today. We have with us Tabitha Bull. She is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, which works with Indigenous and non-Indigenous businesses to uh, help strengthen uh, a purposeful and Indigenous economy and Canadian market. So, Tabitha, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, of course, um, we're talking now about some results that uh, the organization, your organization, has done uh, in terms of how COVID has impacted uh, a survey that, that you did for Indigenous businesses and, um, and, and, and what that you know, in many cases, of course, this ties in with non-Indigenous businesses. All businesses have felt this right across the country. But Indigenous businesses in many areas uh, have specific needs. They're in specific markets. They're dealing with specific things that would affect them more directly than the non-Indigenous or general uh, business population. Um, so initially, why did you think it was important to, to do a survey like this? So I think for, uh, from the outset, right, you know, the very middle of March, um, when we started to see the federal government looking at programming and in order to support business, um, we definitely wanted to bring to their attention that, as you said, there are some unique needs and circumstances of Indigenous business that needed to be considered. Uh, we also wanted to ensure that we had the data and, and research to inform policy and to inform those programs. And then also as um, CCAB ourselves to understand what programming our members need and what we could be doing to help uh, Indigenous businesses across the country. Um, so we had done a few very small surveys at the outset and then we um, joined with a number of other national Indigenous economic development organizations um, in a task force on uh, COVID response, both looking at um, this survey and data, and then also looking at Indigenous businesses that could supply uh, PPE mm. and how we could ensure that people were buying from them. Mm. What What did you find in that regard? Um, so there are, uh, within our membership at CCAB, there's about 24 businesses, Indigenous businesses that are supplying PPE and have pivoted to do so. Um, and then from the other associations as well, there's a significant number. So I think there's around 50 that are currently supplying um, PPE or able to and uh, a significant number that also have an interest or are uh, able to pivot to do that. Um, from the survey, we had, it was about 12% of the respondents that said that they would be able to or were currently providing PPE. Mm. Now, in general, what are the generalities you found about the Indigenous uh, businesses that you looked at uh, in terms of, of how they were able to or were going to be able to cope with the COVID lockdown and the situation that was facing them? So definitely, and, and you know, I uh, as you said, I think this is similar for, for many businesses, but Definitely, as the pandemic has gone on, we've seen um, the concern of impact and the impact to those businesses continue to get um, more and more concerning. Um, we did see over 90% of Indigenous businesses uh, reported that they've experienced a very or negative impact on their business. Um, and more than 76% of them have, have experienced a decrease in revenue. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Government uh, help, government incentives uh, to help businesses through this this uh, situation that we're we're facing. Uh, what did you find in terms of of how that was going to impact uh, some of these businesses? So definitely at the outset, and and also together, you know, it's been so important for us to collaborate with with other organizations such as NACA and CANDU um, and the National Indigenous Economic Development Board um, in order for us to have a really joint voice in going to to Mm. government. So at the outset, when we started to hear about this um, emergency business account, um, we wrote a joint letter to um, the COVID cabinet, um, really highlighting to them that only a third of Indigenous businesses use traditional financial institutions. Mm. So we, there needed to be another path for liquidity for those for other businesses, um, and that did result in a three hundred seven million dollar fund to be distributed through uh, Aboriginal financial institutions to those businesses. Um, there was definitely a delay between the emergency business account through your traditional institutions and the um, funding available through the Aboriginal financial institutions, but um, it is flowing now. Um, there is still another third percent of, or another third, sorry, of Indigenous businesses that don't have funding or have a relationship with either one of those. Mm. They're more personally financed, mm-hmm. um, and we're still really pushing for some opportunity for liquidity for those businesses. Now, that that's a really interesting point. I think you just brought up about how one third of those businesses don't access the same uh, kinds of traditional uh, uh, sources that. Uh, that other businesses would in in Canada. I think that's really interesting right off the top. So that's one thing that that makes that Indigenous uh, business different than than the norm. Uh, and you just mentioned again about this other third. Um, and and uh, so fa- that's that's really interesting uh, stuff. Now you started to look at at top five industries, I believe, uh, when you started to to do this survey. Um, yeah, so we definitely, in looking at the survey and looking at industries that are, you know, hardest hit, um, and this is the same across Canada when you look at um, retail and um, tourism and um, industries that have been such so hard hit from uh, COVID, and we see a very high percentage of Indigenous businesses in those um, areas. So definitely tourism, and I know uh, Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada has been really pushing hard for their members, and they were able to secure uh, $16 million in funding from the federal government to support their members, mm. really just to get through this period of the pandemic. But we're definitely going to need to look at recovery for those businesses as well. Mm. Uh, going back to the point you made about the, the one-third of businesses that and I guess that wasn't a surprise to you personally, but were you surprised at, at the numbers you were finding in terms of, of who was accessing and, and where people were accessing dollars from? So I, I think, you know, we've been looking at that type of research for some time at mm. CCAB. Some of the things that we were surprised about is as programs, other programs were rolled out, the wage subsidy as an example, um, there were items within the wage subsidy that made Indigenous businesses ineligible to apply Mm. initially. Mm. Um, And part of that has to do with the way some of the businesses are structured uh, in a community, um, that they have the the First Nation government as a shareholder. And the reason they do that is because it it helps them be able to get financing from a bank um, to have a First Nation uh, 
as a shareholder, but that precluded them from being able to apply for the wage subsidy initially. It, and it, some of those are very large businesses with 800 um, staff. Right. So we really pushed for that from the government and they, and they did revise that as well. So the government is listening and they've been very responsive. It just has been a bit surprising as programs roll out that we need to go back and highlight why there are um, barriers to some Indigenous businesses to apply. Apply. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was just going to bring up that's one of those barriers that uh, that that is an example of the, of the differences that that uh, Indigenous businesses is facing. Um, and I guess the other thing that COVID nineteen, because of this this situation, has brought out is looking at uh, at those differences between the uh, the general business practice in in Canada. And businesses that are based perhaps on reserve uh, and have to look at at getting that uh, buy-in or that uh, uh, the shareholders uh, uh, of the community, maybe the council uh, coming on board to help them so they can access those dollars. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is it's kind of pointing out the shortcomings that we see and then a lot of, of us may have, have known about uh, in the community uh, that maybe the general public are not aware of. Do you think that the government, you said the government is listening, do you think they are... Be- now now becoming more aware of the the of this the the inequities that are that are facing uh, general indigenous business now because of this. Yeah, um, I, there's definitely so the this research study that we are have just released findings on was was supported by Indigenous Services Canada and um, they've taken a real interest in the results mm. and are looking. Um, at what's going to be needed in recovery based on on the survey results you know we've also um i've had the opportunity to present to the senate standing committee on um, indigenous affairs i think the one thing that we're really pushing though is it needs to be a an all whole of government um, recognition of the barriers not not specifically through indigenous services mm, um mm. ministry or um the old INAC, um, which is now called CERNA, it needs to be every ministry. So all ministries need to be understanding what these barriers are um, from the outset. And and when programs are developed, they need to be cognizant of, of what those barriers are, particularly because a lot of those barriers are, are a result of the Indian Act, which is, you know, a government document. So, um, mm. well, yeah, I do think, to, to answer your question, I do think that they're becoming more aware, but we really need it to be an, an all of government awareness. Sure, Absolutely. Hopefully that will uh, that will come to pass, and and this will uh, uh, bring out further changes that will be of benefit for uh, for other indigenous uh, businesses across the country. Um, uh, be that whether it's Métis, Inuit, or or First Nation based, etc. And yeah. I, I, the the survey that you did, you know, does bring just some general interest and in interesting points. Maybe you were already aware of this, as you point out, because you've been involved with with uh, these kind of things for some time. Um, you know, but just for instance, the majority of of businesses are are owned by men. Uh, you know, some of these general points are, are are you know somewhat of interest as well. Yeah, so th- so that's um, actually more the survey respondents uh, mm. were more mm. majority owned okay. by men, but we do see um, women-owned businesses being created at a faster rate than than male-owned businesses in the indigenous community, um, and w- and we also did see that um, women-owned businesses and and Inuit-owned businesses experienced uh, a more significant impact, negative impact, um, based on the survey respondents than than 
well, women compared to men and Inuit businesses mm. had a, a higher revenue drop um, than we saw for Métis and, and First Nation owned businesses. So, so those type of things are very interesting. And um, we want to do more research to understand what some of the rationale is behind that and um, which we should be doing mm. to better prepare those businesses in the future. <laughs> So you're, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Our guest is Tabitha Bolsh. She's the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, which works with Indigenous and non-Indigenous businesses to help strengthen a prosperous Indigenous economy and Canadian market. Uh, Tabitha is Anishinaabe. She's a proud member of the Nipissing First Nation near North Bay, Ontario. It's a, a pleasure to have her back on the show. We're talking about the impacts of COVID-19 on uh, from a survey that uh, she, along with other uh, 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 participants took um, uh, to look at how the, the COVID-19 was impacting business. Uh, Tabitha, one of the things, uh, I guess you, you weren't surprised, maybe you knew this again as well, but I'm wondering how you found uh, a lot of Indigenous businesses are self-proprietors, are sole proprietors, and also uh, there, is, there is some uh, I guess in some communities, concern about uh, incorporation and non-incorporation, uh, incorporating a business. Um, did you find, or what could, What do you know about any of that you might be able to share? Um, so definitely uh, a lot of businesses, as you said, are uh, sole proprietors or, or have less than five employees. Um, actually, about 99% of the Indigenous businesses in Canada uh, mm. are of that size. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from the outset, the Canadian Federation of Independent uh, Businesses did an initial survey that said that small, medium businesses would not be able to uh, sustain more than 30 days of being shut down without mm. supports. So we've really been looking um, at how that's going to impact such a large amount of Indigenous businesses that are mm. of that size. And mm. and as I, as I said earlier, when, when there's a delay in the funding um, to Indigenous businesses and your survival rate is based on 30 days, it's, that's a very impactful. Um, sure. that. The other note on the un, uh, incorporated or unincorporated is is again a bit is a gap, and you know if you're a uh, First Nation on reserve, um, there there may not be a requirement for you to be incorporated mm. um, to date, and so there is a, there is a gap there as well in funding that's available. But again, um, the federal government did announce 117 million dollars for businesses that are on reserve potentially you know, specifically for those unincorporated businesses, mm. that money has yet to, to flow yet. Mm. Um, they are looking at making sure that there is funding available to Inuit, Métis and First Nation businesses uh, who haven't been able to apply for the other supports for reasons of being unincorporated as an example. And right. um, we are hopeful that that will help those businesses. So we're now into, you know, three months of, of COVID-19. And as you mentioned, some of these businesses were saying they couldn't survive more than 30 days. What have you been hearing uh, if, since uh, we're now into this this third month and, and things are starting to loosen up somewhat, but we're still uh, we're still dealing with this and it doesn't look like it's going to go completely away for some time. What, what are you hearing from some of the small and medium-sized businesses, et cetera, at this point? So some definitely have been able to um, apply for some of 
the funds. We do a, um, we were initially at the outset of, of COVID having a weekly call with our, our members and with, with any Indigenous businesses who needed support just to try to help navigate the various different programs that are out there. And uh, we had a call yesterday and uh, it was it was definitely more positive. Um, some of the businesses who had not been able to apply for some of the original programs have been able to apply for the, the more recent programs. So that's um, definitely a positive, uh, really positive to hear. And and I, you know, businesses are definitely start to look starting to look towards recovery as well so we're looking at how we can aid um, those businesses through the recovery period and what type of tools um, are going to be needed um, how can we support businesses both uh, acquiring PPE as well um, and also what type of program is going to be needed for businesses who may have to retrofit um, their existing store or gas station in order to um, accommodate the new social distance rules so you know it is nice to start to look towards recovery um, for those businesses who have have been able to sustain through this period um, in in our survey at the time which what went from end of april to end of may at that time about two percent of the respondents had said that they had already closed and uh ten percent were predicting that they wouldn't be able to last a, a month uh beyond that so we will you know, it's really important that we're going to be able to do some further research to really understand what the impact was post-COVID um, on the Indigenous business and Indigenous economy, and that's something we're looking at in the future. Right. So uh, speaking of the future, then, uh, you also have a list of, of calls to action that you're recommending. Yes. So so definitely um, one would is additional funding and supports, which we have seen some of those um, come out. And in Ontario, here, here as well, um, the Ontario government announced a $10 million fund to um, provide grants and loans to Indigenous businesses as well, um, in addition to, to what's available from the federal government. So that too is is really uh, a positive note. Um, and we're also calling for further research so that we can understand further needs and what the impacts were and uh, what the needs will be during the recovery period. And we're really pushing um, for a procurement strategy from the government of Canada. And we'll be working with provincial governments as well to look at how um, they can ensure that they're purchasing PPE from Indigenous businesses. And and um, we have developed this, all of us as organi national organizations together have worked with um, Indigenous Services Canada to develop a database of businesses that can supply PPE that, that government buyers can access directly. Um, so we're working hard on that. Um, I also sit on the COVID-19 Supply Council, with the Minister of Procurement, and we've been uh, working hard in that venue as well to, to really push that the government look to buy from Indigenous businesses. And we've had some good results. They've put out a couple RFPs specifically to Indigenous businesses for uh, non-surgical masks. So we're really hopeful that we'll see some contracts there. Um, procurement is definitely one of the strongest paths to recovery if we could, mm. you know, get corporate Canada and government uh, buying from right. Indigenous business. Yeah. And is that, uh, I mean, I was just going to mention or, or inquire about the, you know, getting the word out for these Indigenous businesses that are supplying the PPE. So uh, that pro procurement, you know, might help in that area for sure. Uh, but... Um, 
what are you are you finding that that those businesses are getting uh, their word out that they are being able to supply this and and uh, and the results are coming in for them that they're they're getting uh, business brought to them so that they can uh, supply these these items. Uh, yeah, so we, you know we're really look still looking for that that good contract from the federal government, but mm. we have seen from corporate Canada, um, uh, the Bank of Montreal has a has a contract with an indigenous business t- for PPE, um, as well as Hydro One here in Ontario. Mm. So we have seen some really good corporate Canada purchasing uh, from indigenous business. We have a list, uh, public list on our website at ccab.com of. Uh, certified Indigenous businesses that are supplying PPE as well. Um, and that's also linked from the federal government's supply hub. So we're hoping that we can continue to to bring those um, businesses and, and continue to promote them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, now, what else haven't we touched on that you think is important to mention in regard to this? Maybe it's something that you've learned or that uh, has come to your attention uh, post uh, this survey. Um, so I think just to look towards, you know, recovery, um, a, a key piece that uh, we've really seen in some of the impact is the lack of broadband infrastructure mm. in First Nation communities. And, um not just really rural communi- communities either, but um, the lack of infrastructure in communities, you know, which are quite sure. near to city centers. Yep. Uh, when we all move to remote work, I think we've all found um, a difficulty in our broadband and our access. Um, even here in, in Toronto where I live, uh, you know, with my kids at home going to school and mm. my husband working from home, it, there has definitely been days where it's been a bit choppy on my internet. So <laughs> if there isn't strong broadband, in communities, which which is is definitely lacking right now, um, definitely puts indigenous businesses uh, at a disadvantage. So, really pushing for the federal government to ensure that they're continuing to keep broadband infrastructure as a priority, um, and hope hopefully there'll be an ability for them to ramp that up as well. Uh, just keeping in in mind how long we may be working from home. Right. So, so that's something that's really key. And and I think also just infrastructure in general and community. So, you know, at the beginning when, when we were all at home and washing our ha- told to wash our hands often, and if you look in a community at a, the overcrowding situation of housing and um, the lack of, of clean drinking water or, or clean water at all, um, it really highlights the gap and the social economic gap and how crises can really have a more immediate and bigger impact on um, communities that are are in a lower infrastructure and and, uh, not as privileged as some. And, you know, that is something, of course, that was brought up that has been repeated about, uh, you know, what Health Canada has recommended in terms of those things, like washing your hands. And as we all know, there are many First Nations that uh, don't have that clean water availability and don't can't even use their water uh, for those purposes, which, you know, uh, it was also pointed out. You know, something that, that when you mentioned that, and I was thinking about this a little while ago, I was wondering about um, the military bases that are placed around this country, um, you know, in remote areas. And I'm wondering, you know, how many of those don't have fresh water? I'm, I'm guessing they probably all do. So I'm wondering if they can yeah. do that with for the military bases. Why can they not do that then for the indigenous uh, communities as well? Just a, an observation yeah. on my part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 
I think, yeah, it's, um, it is definitely something, you know, the more that we have these discussions as well, and uh, the more good media has these discussions, but I think just in general, Canadians are being more educated and um, the more we can continue to, to push for those to be a priority. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Tab, uh, anything else uh, just before we wrap up here that you'd like to mention? So I think just one is that um, we are really starting to focus on recovery. We, um, as you know, last time I was on, we were talking about some of our awards. Um, We still feel it's so important to ensure that we're celebrating Indigenous business and Mm. uh, people that are doing good work. So we we did have to cancel a few of our our larger events, but Mm. we're moving to a virtual large forum um, mm-hmm. on September 16th and right. that will be an opportunity for us to really bring in uh, supports about recovery around um, some of the things we've heard from businesses that are needed um, but then also an opportunity for us to ensure that we um, continue to celebrate our women in leadership and um, uh, excellence in, in Aboriginal business relations awards as well so right we're looking forward to that celebration. Yeah, and we, we all should be looking forward to that. It's great that you're able to do that and move forward in this way and, and still bring us some good news uh, in, in terms of uh, Indigenous uh, businesses and, uh, as you pointed out, uh, women and what they're doing as well, which is fabulous to always to hear. Tapathy, it's always uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and we're glad to have you back on the show. And we look forward to having you back uh, maybe later on, maybe in September, once we uh, get closer to these, these things and, and catch up with you at that point. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Tabith Bull is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And we were talking to to her about the Indigenous Business COVID-19 Response Task Force uh, Indigenous Business Survey that they worked on. And uh, uh, as we looked at Indigenous business uh, and how it is coping with the COVID-19 situation. That's this part of the program. Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. I'm Kathy Sabokin from the Element FM newsroom. Well, there may be a lot of travel restrictions or fear about flying because of COVID-19, but it doesn't mean we can't plan to go somewhere in the future. And one of the latest travel trends is DNA vacations or roots trips or heritage trips So why not do all of the background work now so that you can be ready to travel to the home of your ancestors as soon as you feel comfortable getting back onto a plane? To tell us more about it, I'm joined by award-winning multimedia travel journalist, Valerie Delia. She joins us from New York. Welcome, Valerie. Kathy, thank you so much. It's great to hear your voice. And I guess you're not traveling too far these days because of the pandemic? Uh, I am absolutely not. I'm sticking to all the rules. I go out on my bike in Central Park here in New York City. I do the loop of about uh, six miles and I try to do that every evening uh, because there are fewer people out there um, and I'm, I'm not very far away from Central Park here on the Upper East Side. So I get my exercise that way and otherwise I am uh, in my apartment, uh, 27 floors high, and I am delving into my office of um, memorabilia and records because I am a genealogy buff. Well, before we get into that, I was reading your bio. I would just like to hear more about you. You were born into a family travel business dating back to 1902. 
Yes, um, absolutely. My uh, great-grandfather, Frank G. Delia, was born in Castelfranco in Miscano, Italy, and he would sell steerage class tickets during the immigration wave to his friends and family coming over from Naples, Italy, to Bridgeport, Connecticut. But of course, the steamship uh, would make its way to Ellis Island. So I am the fourth generation and extremely proud of uh, my great grandfather and what he created for our family. So it went down the, um, the line from great grandfather to grandfather, to my father, and then to me and my brothers. And I've taken this always into a different realm uh, where I started with the travel agency business in high school with my mother. I would go uh, after high school and I would make out tickets when tickets ticketing was not automated. And uh, then I got into uh, journalism, as you know, and I started to uh, to report on travel. And so I've taken into a, taken the family business into a whole new realm. It's incredible. How many countries have you visited so far? <laughs> I've been to 102 countries, um, Kathy. Oh, my goodness. Now, how did all of this lead you to DNA vacations? Well, after a very nice run uh, on New York One News as their travel reporter reporting as um, travel with Val doing video, um, I was laid off after an incredible permalance um, career uh, after about 18 years. And I started to think at this point in my career, what really is important to me? What really you know, rings my bell? And um, I had been very lucky that uh, my father would always tell me about this little village in Italy and uh, I always say he was a fantastic marketer for his ethnicity. And I started to visit uh, this little village. And I learned something extraordinary was happening in that village. And I did um, a video production about it that uh, won me uh, three awards. And that's where I really started to connect with uh, my roots. Well, what was the amazing thing happening in the village? <laughs> well, um, besides the fact that it absolutely exists, <laughs> I found out that within um, this village that we are related, and I am the fourth cousin of a very famous uh, maestro, a symphony orchestra conductor whose name is Antonio Papano, and his parents were both born in this little village, and he is the maestro of Rome's Santa Cecilia uh, Symphony Orchestra and also um, London's um, orchestra of the Royal Opera. He is the orche orchestra leader there. And he comes back every year during the Ferragusto holiday, which is coming up uh, in August, but it doesn't look as if he'll be making his performance this year for obvious reasons. But he comes into our little village. We set up a stage in the tiny piazza and we fill it with hundreds of people and he does a tribute concert in honor of his father. And he, it is the most beautiful presentation um, that I've that I've ever seen in my travels and uh, very, very uh, heartwarming. And he is so passionate about this little village the same way um, that I am and my relatives are. 
and it, it, he, what he does is he mentors the students from um, Benevento's orchestra, and we are a province of a bigger uh, city called Benevento. So the kids come in and they learn from this, uh, this maestro, and I put together a video uh, about six minutes called The Making of a Maestro from Castelfranco to Carnegie Hall. Um, I followed the concerts in our village and then something incredible happened is the maestro Papano was invited to Carnegie Hall to make his debut. So I made the connection between this small village and his uh, debut at Carnegie Hall and it has won me um, three uh, journalistic awards uh, uh, up to this point. And um, I'm very, very proud of that. That's incredible, Valerie. What's the name of the village? It is called Castelfranco and in Miscano, province of Benevento. It's the longest name for the smallest little place. It has 800 people. So the Castelfranco uh, name, that is the name of the little village. And they say in Miscano, and believe it or not, Miscano is a river that is the skinniest little river you'd ever want to see. So there are other Castelfrancos in um, Italy, and many of them are uh, very wealthy and ours, I always like to say, is the humble one in uh, southern Italy, northeast of Naples by an hour, and south of Rome by three, um, by three hours. And so Castelfranco in Miscano, and then we are, um, our province is Benevento, uh, so we, we belong to uh, Benevento, which is a larger city, a very beautiful historic uh, city, and um, I do roots trips back to my village. That's something that sprouted out of all this where every uh, Fair Augusto, uh, it would have been for the third year. This year, we bring people back to see the concert, to see our small village, to see the surroundings, to see Benevento, and to take little side trips. Uh, but unfortunately, this, uh, this won't be the year for that because uh, us Americans are not able to travel there at this point, but that may change. But this takes a lot of planning for people to do a roots trip and for me to do the roots trip in, um, in concert <laughs> with my, um, my cousins, um, my fourth cousins in, uh, in Castelfranco. And, and I'm, I'm laughing, Kathy, because everybody's a fourth cousin when you belong to a small village. No kidding. Now, did you just, so you found out about the village, so you traveled there, and was it just from talking to people in the village that you learned about all of this history and your cousins there? And Oh, well, as I said, um, my father was a grand marketer, and as a little girl, um, I, I grew up with a, with a small picture on the wall, and it was of this little village, um, and it just seemed to be so exotic to me. And um, of course, my father's parents were from this village. So seeing that visual and knowing that I had Italian grandparents who, who very sadly didn't speak any Italian with me, they only argued in Italian and they only <laughs> spoke English to us because like many Italian American immigrants, they wanted to be American. They were so proud of that. And I'm so proud that they, they did that. However, now as I struggle with my uh, Italian um, and I've been learning now for 
for about six years. Um, I, I, I really uh, appreciate um, how, how difficult it is to, to learn another language at a certain point in your life. Um, but I kind of wish it was in my, my brain, you know, put in there by my grandparents. But or, yeah. well, now uh, you can figure yeah. out what they were arguing about. <laughs> and I can totally relate to that because my parents were from Slovenia. And they uh-huh. used to talk in Slovenian all the time and argue in Slovenian. And I never knew what they were saying is because just like your parents, grandparents. Yes. It's felt that I only needed to know English, which is un- unfortunate. It is, you know, uh, but, but I will say um, I'm enjoying learning. And when I get there uh, to the village, um, it all does start to sink in. And I learn the things that I need to say, and then I get better. And uh, you sort of get into the swing. And what's beautiful is that, um, you know, people just appreciate you making an effort. Just when I'm over there, just to try to communicate, they love it. And, and I, I think most of them really, uh, really appreciate me and, and love me and love the fact that I bring people over who are so excited about their their village, which is our village. Um, there are a lot of, we, we call ourselves Castel Frangese, and there are many of us uh, who did that route from Naples to Ellis Island to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Actually, Connecticut in general is, is full of Italian-Americans, and, and that's where I was born, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and you know now living in New York City. It's an incredible story. Now, what in, in general, like aside from Italy, someone wants to go on a DNA vacation or roots vacation, and now we have time to dig into the past. Have you done that? Did you go for a DNA test? Did, what, how, do, how do you do it? Well, to start things off, yes, maybe you could be as fortunate as I am and to know that you have parents who came direct, grandparents who came directly over on the boat, as they would say. And I knew that that part of my father's family was was a hundred percent. Now, uh, I've done four DNA tests myself just to uh, just to check and see what I am. And I came up as 42% 42% Italian. And I say that is just not Italian enough. <laughs> and so I am on a quest to become as Italian as possible. Now, having said that, okay, I've had grandparents who were born in this little village in Italy, but um, there obviously there's some Greek in them. You know, I see that there's, there's Greek in me that I didn't know about. So nobody is really a hundred percent anything. And then I don't mean to diss my mother but, you know, my mother was, was a mutt, uh, let's put it that way, but I call her my Irish lass. She was uh, mostly Irish, she was Scottish, she was English and German, and um, so the Irish is a smaller part of me, about um, 10%. Um, but I would say that my father was just the better marketer. My mother, and she was one generation uh, further removed than my father was from his ethnicity. So for the average person, to take it, to me, to take a DNA test is key. Uh, we've got a number of them out there. The big ones are Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, MyHeritage um, DNA. And um, yeah, I recommend that you, that you do at, at least one of those. When you do more than one, then you can compare 
And when there's a big population of people who do DNA, uh, let's say ancestry DNA, um, you find that sometimes they, they get a little bit more particular with your results. And what I mean by that is, you know, I started at 42% with ancestry DNA and um, they brought me down to 32%. They took away 10% of my Italian <laughs> because how they- How dare they? I think how you dare they? tested now that you're studying Italian, you go to Italy <laughs> I think you've gained that 10% back. You're, no, you're absolutely right. And I, uh, but but I, I, I think once you have a big base, um, from how I understand it, a big base of people putting their DNA uh, you know, into the pot there, you, that you'll find that uh, the numbers get jiggered around a bit. But I also found, I went to visit my parents' villages in Slovenia. They came from tiny little villages. And it was fascinating just to talk to these relatives and find out what happened back in the day. And I'd like to go back even farther because I found it very, very interesting, very fascinating because it's interesting. How did we get to where we are now? It's, and I think it's important to, to know about our past. So that's another thing we can do, right, is just talk to relatives and maybe have a conversation, find out more talk to relatives about things we might not have asked them about before. Exactly, um, Kathy. So are, are you 100%? Uh, yeah. Oh, very, very. As far cool. as I know, I haven't done a DNA test, but I, I know my parents and their parents were from Slovenia. So I'm guessing everybody was from around there. You may find that it's a diluted a little bit, um, but you, you just said it. Right now is a perfect opportunity for people to do some oral history. You have um, you know, extra time in the pandemic. It's reach out to your close relatives. Obviously, they're the e easiest target. And then um, try to get some clues to your distant relatives. And you want to fill in this oral history. You, you want to get as much information as possible and you want to get stories. Because to me, genealogy, it's all about stories. And, you know, that's why I love doing what I did in my village with, um, with the maestro, because I told a story. And that's what, that's what we're all about. So it's a very good time to do this, to trace your roots. And um, what I do is, since I'm the caretaker of so much memorabilia of the travel agency, I've been searching through my old records, photos. We, I just have reams and reams, and, and I'm cataloging things right now. And um, it actually looks like this family travel agency might even have an exhibit um, at the uh, museum that's going to be uh, reopening down in Little Italy. And I'm, I'm you know, very proud of that, working on, on something now because you know, we tell a story. We tell a story of how a travel, you know, travel agencies were, were created you know, from my great grandfather just selling those steerage class tickets and, and you know, that, that awful experience. Going and across. all of this because you took some steps, you found out about your past, you visited your past, and that was something you did after visiting 102 other countries. And it led to all of this. Yes, it, it, it did. I, I always was, I was always fascinated as a little girl with the attic, going up there, reading these letters from my grandmother's cousin in Italy to her in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I'm the one who just was always asking questions. So there was, I just feel like that part of my DNA was always in there. And, 
and, and gave me that, you know, kick to really want to organize things. Um, so I'm a better collector than organizer, I'll have to admit, but I, I'm trying to uh, archive things. So it's, this is my, um, my advice for anybody, you know, you can start slowly and, and just start looking. You never know what you're going to find. Yes. I'm Kathy Subokin from the Element FM newsroom and my guest, award-winning travel journalist, Valerie Delia, joining me from New York. You can also find Valerie on travelwithval.com. And we are talking about diving back into your roots and then taking a trip there to find out even more, connect with your history. Now, we were just talking about digging through your old photos, your memorabilia. So taking those steps to learn more about your history, can you do some kind of a family search somehow? Like Oh, yes. Family tree, did you do any of that? Oh, we have. Yes, we have. And, and um, I am not the person who has, let's see, allotted my time to that. I've got so many cousins who have done that and done that very well. So yes, we do have a family tree in our family and we're a very close knit Italian American family. Like for instance, we've had a 4th of July picnic uh, for the past 78 years, except for this year. And that's when we always bring out our family tree. We compare it, we add to it. So there's, so you don't have to do everything. So I, I think if you get together with other members of your family who have a similar passion, it's, um, it's very helpful. And you were discussing, um, Kathy and have asked me before about um, trips. Now, these ancestry companies, like for instance, Ancestry DNA is one of the leaders in ancestral trips. And um, it, it would be worth looking into the trips that they already have that are organized because not everybody is as fortunate to know as I know exactly where my relatives are from. But if you think if you're Italian, they'll take you ancestry DNA can take you to Italy. They'll get you closer to where your uh, ancestral home is. So that's this is what's sprouting out of these ancestry DNA kits. That's the big thing now are these Roots and you lead some of them too. You lead some too. Yes, I do, but mine are particular to this village, to Castelfranco in Miscano. Now that means that people who may hear me and say, God, that sounds familiar, you know, maybe they're related in some way. Maybe they want to uh, come on our roots trips, which um, take place over Ferragusto, and we're going to have a big one next year, uh, obviously, because it doesn't look like we're going to make it this year. And um, However, I like to try to uh, help people who may say, you know what, I know my parents are also northeast of Naples in the Campania region. Um, and I can say, well, let's look into that and we can help you. We can help you get to where you might need to go if you're somewhere near Castelfranco. So that's how I foresee my business um, expanding uh, in the future. But there are people who are, I'm not a genealogist. Um, you want to discuss uh, your Italian heritage. There is a um, young man named Rich Venezia, a perfect name. Very good. Very good. <laughs> and uh, he is, uh, his name of his company is Rich Roots. You can found, find him online and um, he helps Italians with dual citizenship. Uh, so you might want to look into that if you're listening to me now and saying, you know, do I qualify for that? 
and um, Lisa Lisson. In general, she's a genealogist, and uh, the name of her company is Are You My Cousin? Uh-huh. Which now, I love. Also, you sent me something earlier, familysearch.org, which is... Yes. And it's yes. a global family tree re- resource. Exactly. They're the long- the meaning of your surname. Yes, exactly. Family Search. I love Family Search. That is located out in Salt Lake City. And they are the oldest organization. They have a big, big library. And what I love about them the most is that they host what's known as the Roots Tech Conference in Salt Lake City. This past year was the 10th anniversary of this Roots Tech Conference, and it takes place each February. It has speakers, classes, an incredible expo hall. This is an amazing resource. Now, Kathy, this past year, we got in by the skin of our teeth uh, because it was just at the very beginning of COVID. And I, and of course, I was a little nervous about going there. Um, and when I got there, they were, you know, handing out hand sanitizer. There are thousands of people that go there and big, big, big uh, expo rooms. And there were honestly just so many people crammed in together that I feel like we were extremely fortunate at that point because there was no breakouts at that time. Um, what a roots tech has done is uh, the, the first very first time in london um this past year i also went to that they had a roots tech in london but they canceled roots tech in november coming up for this year uh in london which would have been the second time uh for that roots tech conference in london but now salt lake city this will be the 11th time and so far so good so anyone who has any interest this is the place to go and the best thing about it is you can make a little side trip. It's, it's, it's within walking distance to their family search library. And um, it's um, part of the, the Mormons. And they have uh, the elders who help you with a search. And it's a really fantastic opportunity uh, to help you find passenger lists and any information, birth records about your uh, relatives. I went looking for the passenger list for my grandfather when he was two years old, coming over in uh, 1892. Kathy and the elder I was working with, he made a story up for me by looking at the passenger list and my uh, grandfather's mother and her sister were in their 30s when they came over on the ship from Naples to Ellis Island. They were in their 30s with six children. So this elder was telling me about how just brave and how ambitious these women uh, were to come over at that young age. And it was just really delightful that he would, you know, prob- there was probably a lot of truth to it. You know, he was, it, it was beautiful because I thought, that's me, you know, I'm ambitious. <laughs> you know, right. I'm brave. And I thought, wow, you know, what an effort that they made. And, and, it's, and there's probably a lot of truth to it. So highly recommend familysearch.org. It's something you can get onto right now. You can, you can go on and you can start. And that, um, yeah, when my dad passed away, my niece, who is an archivist, she did a dig into his past and she learned about what boat he came on from Europe, the name of the boat. And, and, and I 
mentioned all of that in the eulogy that I, I gave. Oh, Kathy. You know, but it was, it really made it very special to know all of these details about the past that otherwise I would have overlooked. It really, it, it was great. So your familysearch.org and we can find out about our family tree, et cetera, and et cetera. Take a DNA test, look at your oral communication with your family, cousins. It's really important, I think, too. Like my grandmother, I wished I would have had more conversations with her. I was younger. I didn't really think much about my grandmother's history, she was just my grandmother who happened to live with us when I was growing up. But I, I really regret not talking to her more and asking her more of these questions. So if any of you listening have grandparents, go talk to them. Where'd they come from? Exactly, exactly. And now though, however, these people are, are who would be doing that questioning is are one generation or even two generations behind. Like we were lucky or I was lucky to be a second generation Italian American on my father's side. You know, that's the thing. My niece and her children, you know, they're going down third generation, fourth generation. So you have to look for someone like me who is more of the family archivist, I think at this point. But, but don't be afraid to reach out. Yeah, that's true. There usually is one person in the family who's more into searching the past than others, but I think the others appreciate it. Oh, they absolutely do. And um, when we get together, you're always going to learn a little nugget. And um, sometimes I joke that I get along better with my dead relatives than my live ones. (laughs) Okay. Terrible. (laughs) Not a good... All right. Now, so you, you've got Italy covered, it sounds like, and if someone finds out they're from anywhere, like so you want to find out more, you just do a search and you suggested Ancestry DNA can line up trips for you. Any other interesting trips that you know of offhand? Yes, yes, um, Kathy, I do. Um, there are what are known as uh, genealogy cruises. So for instance, for when we can cruise again. (laughs) Yeah. For when we can cruise again. Um, Unfortunately, there's, there's one uh, that was supposed to be going in mid uh, August that I was going to be part of. And it was on Cunard line. Um, I haven't uh, been told whether it is officially canceled. Uh, However, I I believe that it is probably in jeopardy, uh, obviously, and um, it'll be rescheduled and it's a crossing from Southampton to Ellis Island, you know, to New York City, which is a direction that our relatives sailed in when they came over and they have ancestry DNA genealogists um, on board. And that's something worth looking into. And you'll, you'll find a few of those um, scattered around uh, when it comes, comes back, when, when things get back to normal. Uh, you know, we're all looking at next um, summer, hopefully, is, you know, having a vaccine and being able to get through this. Um, we need safer. that vaccine. We really do. Yes, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Well, that's good to know, too. There are cruises that offer these trips. Yes, there are. So um, it's getting bigger and and bigger. And there are um, some tour operators now that are like working with Ancestry um, DNA on these trips. So it's only getting getting um, better. It's only there's getting more. There are more opportunities 
for people to travel because there is nothing like it. It's one thing to do all of your archiving and research. Kathy, there is nothing like stepping foot, as you know, in the land of your ancestry. Um, I, as I said, 102 countries, I have never been moved the way I am moved when I go to this little village and realize that that is where my grandmother and grandfather were born. And um, <laughs> the big news that I'll share with you is as a result of this um, experience that I've had, I am going to be buying a home in Castelfranco and developing a television series around it about going back uh, to the land of my roots and uh, renovating a home and becoming a, a part of that little community. That's incredible. I can definitely see a show like that on Netflix. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's- uh, I'd watch it, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of, uh, in Italy, you're probably familiar with uh, the Casa Une Euro pro program, Houses for One Euro. Prior to the pandemic, mm -hmm. there was a lot of uh, publicity about it. The, there's a lot of uh, villages in Southern Italy um, that are abandoned because young people want to go to the larger cities. So you have these beautiful little villages with homes that are abandoned. And in order to bring life back to them, the government is selling some of these for it's called one euro. It's like a dollar, but that is only really just to get you hooked into it. It's going to cost you money to renovate these houses. So th there's also a market that is available uh, where homes are for sale that are in better shape that maybe I've looked in my village that are as low as like $5,000 and you don't have to do as much renovation work. And that looks like that's the direction that I'm going to go in is something that doesn't need as much renovation, will cost me a little bit more getting in, but under 10,000 euro. Um, and, and this is getting very popular, uh, although all of that has been on hold. Sounds like a wonderful plan, Valerie. Yes, very thank excited you, about it. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Your story's amazing and you've got me inspired. I'm definitely going to start tracking into my roots a little bit more. And now we have the time, like you said. Grazie mille. <laughs> I'm Kathy Sabokin from the Element FM newsroom. And my guest has been award-winning travel journalist, Valerie Delia. And you've been listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also find us on the Radio Player Canada app or our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.